0: I think discontent is a powerful force. And I think discontent, um, you know, if you feel discontented or or troubled or, as you said, you know, you've got a good life, but you feel like there's more out there, um, then I think you should pay attention to that.
1: Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic Today I talk with best-selling author Chris Guillebeau, who's best known for books like The Art of Nonconformity, which has been translated into more than 20 languages, and The $100 Startup, which has sold more than half a million copies worldwide. He's written four other books as well. He hosts the Side Hustle podcast, which has dropped new episodes each day since 2017. And back in 2013, before he turned 35 years old, he visited every United Nations recognized country in the world. That's 193 countries in total. Our conversation actually starts on the topic of travel, specifically West Africa, where he worked as a volunteer for several years back in his early 20s. Chris's books tend to revolve around the idea that we should pursue work that channels our passions, and we talk about how travel is a great way to find and implement your passions in a way that makes you more employable, or at least more likely to make a living from your passions when you get home. We talk about how travel can be a savvy alternative to university, or at least a savvy precursor to university, in an era when college can be an expensive undertaking if you're not sure what you want to study. We talk about how channeling your discontent in life can be a good thing for young people as well as people in mid-career, and we talk about what it's like to write big-idea books like The Art of Nonconformity and how to tell if what feels like a great idea for a book is worthy of the effort that goes into writing a book or if that idea might work better as a speech or an essay or a podcast. We talk about how to get your best ideas to find the light of day, be they travel ideas or career ideas or book ideas. And late in our conversation, we discussed strategies for researching and structuring a book, specifically books like the one Chris writes, which fall into the category of big idea books, which I teach classes for each summer in cities like Paris and London. You know, I think I've mentioned my big idea book boot camps in the past, but I realize that phrase can sound kind of abstract. To be more concrete, a big idea book is about a specific topic, but it also covers broader life topics. My own book, Vagabonding, for example, is about travel, but it's also about seeing time as wealth and life as a precious resource. My friend Tim Ferriss' book, The 4-Hour Workweek, is another example of a big idea book. A lot of the students who take my class tend to be an expert in one field, like science or finance or medicine or law or even sports, but they want to write a book that speaks to life in general, even as it speaks to specialized expertise, and my class offers strategies on how to conceptualize and write that kind of book. More information on that at pariswritingworkshops.com or Rolfpotts.comslash deviate. This podcast episode is sponsored by TripScout, the travel app that provides you with a personalized and always up-to-date travel guide for your destination. Trip Scout offers the best articles and recommendations based on your trip dates, who you're going with, your budget, and your interests. You know, I've known Conrad, the app's creator, since he wrote for my Vagabonding blog more than five years ago, and he just launched a new podcast. It's called The School of Travel, and it features short, bite sized episodes that keep you updated on the latest travel tips, trending stories, unique destinations, travel gear, and travel hacks. Check out my link to the School of Travel podcast in the show notes at slash deviate, or really you can search for it anywhere podcasts are found. The Deviate show notes also have links to my main sponsor, Airtrex, which specializes in multi stop itineraries for vagabonding style journeys. Plug in the destination of your dream trip at Airtrex.com to see how they can save you money. You know, I always say that, but seriously, give it a try. You'd be amazed by the trips that you can build and the money you can save there. But for now, please enjoy my conversation with writer Chris Gillipo. I think you first came on my radar when you were on your quest to visit every country in the world. And I think the the footnote was that you were the youngest guy to visit every uh, UN um, approved country in the world. And I want to ask you about that in a second, but through reading your book, you you mentioned also your experience as a volunteer in West Africa, which which sort of predates Mm -hmm. uh, your big around the world, every country in the world journey. So I'm curious to know how you ended up in West Africa and what you learned there, because I have a sort of a corollary experience in Korea and I wouldn't trade it for Mm -hmm. anything. And I'm just curious to know- what West Africa at that point in your life has meant to
0: you. Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I think um, that was the precursor to everything else. And, you know, as, as cool and as fun as it was to, to do the quest to go to every country in the world, I think my life and my worldview is much more defined, you know, by you know, spending those four years in West Africa, you know, before all of that. And it was that experience. So I was an aid worker there living on a hospital ship for much of the time. We would go and be d- deployed in Liberia for a year and then Sierra Leone for a year uh, and then some other countries, you know, along the coast uh, for the rest of the time. And, uh, I mean, that experience is what gave me, you know, confidence you know, in terms of traveling in difficult situations. It's what expanded, you know, my horizons uh, in lots and lots of ways. Um, and, I mean, I, I, like you said, you know, you wouldn't trade that time for anything. And for me, it's the exact same thing. You know, that was a, it was a hard time in some ways, but it was also like this magical time. And, uh, it's one of those periods in my life that I look back on and say, I'm so grateful, you know, that, um, that I was able to do that because it led to so much, you know, later that it's not directly connected, but I can see like, you know, everything that I learned there, I'm still applying in different ways you know, now, which is what, 15 years or so later.
1: How old were you when you went there?
0: Uh, yeah, it was 22, I think mm-hmm. 22, 23 or so. It's like a post nine 11 experience in terms of just like you know, I was kind of depressed, like a lot of people were, and just looking around and like, what's, you know, what am I doing with my life? And like, how can I contribute in some meaningful way? And, um, you know, I read this the story of this uh, surgeon from California who basically gave up his, you know, very you know well-off career in the States uh, uh, to go be on this hospital ship. And he met his wife there, another volunteer. They had two kids, you know, brought them up there. And I thought, well, if this guy and this family can do that, you know, for 17 years or whatever, you know, I, I can do something, you know essentially. And, uh, and again, like you said, I'm, I'm so glad I did It's funny because, you know, even, even then, like my wife and I, we would come back and like, uh, you know, people would say, Oh, it's so great what you're doing, you know, like in this, you know, semi heroic sort of way. And, and we would always say, well, hopefully we are making a difference, you know, like that's what it's about. But, um, you know, our, our lives are being changed and impacted by this, uh, this as well. And like, this is good, this is good for us you know, too.
1: Yeah, it seems like this sort of work, especially when you're young, can be so key. You know, I had my experience in Korea, which, which was paid work. It wasn't volunteer work. And then um, I've interviewed so many travel writers over the years who've done the Peace Corps, for example. Mm. And I know right. that, yeah, yeah. that your brand is really about reinventing the idea of work and doing the kind of work you mm. want and taking control of your fate in very specific ways. But I'm curious to know if there's mm. an argument... For young people, instead of concretely finding a side hustle when they're young, of just sort of Mm -hmm. less specifically going out into the world and 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 doing good or learning lessons, is there is there an argument for? Oh, absolutely.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think you make that argument really well, and and I wouldn't argue against it. I mean, I think um, sometimes sometimes the practical things, you know, as you said, I'm trying to help people in practical ways. It's a big part of my work, but sometimes that stuff follows, uh, you know expanding the horizons or having these experiences you know going out into parts unknown and so on uh, you know just more of a wanderlust and and so I think uh you know over time it's like you you know over time you start having to make more more I don't want to say difficult choices but you have more information you know you have more information about yourself you have more information about the world and so you're able to make you know better decisions you have more of a filter Uh, but no for sure for sure you know for young people in general or people who haven't traveled or anyone who's kind of like you know I want more more to my life than what I have now, you know? Uh, you don't necessarily have all the answers until you start exploring, you know, different questions.
1: Yeah, and I think even non specifically uh, volunteer travel can also help prepare you for things, you know? Because when Vagabonding first mm-hmm. came out, I got a lot of feedback from people who are like, mm-hmm. yeah, I wanna travel, but I don't wanna <clears throat> take time off and lose professional opportunities. I think there was this mm-hmm. idea that, Everybody is at home standing in line for for coveted spots at the front of the line. And a lot of your writing reinforces the idea, well, hey, why wait in line when you can go and form your own Mm. line or your own circle or whatever? Um, Sure,
0: sure, sure.
1: So uh, zooming back out to include your your other travels, your travels that led to every country in the world... um, what kind mm-hmm. of travel mindset and lessons can be folded into the journey to make sure that it's not just wasted time?
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, well, everyone's journey is, you know, is their own, of course. And and for me, I just I got really attracted to the idea of you know, the whole country quest came about when like I just you know started learning more about the world. how many countries are there in the world and you know, what are the difficult parts to get to? And You know, how many islands, island nations are there? And I I was just really interested in that kind of data and making lists of places I'd been and such. So for me, I I found like this close connection between, uh, you know, just the love of travel, the discovery, you know, the non-specific part of of traveling without an agenda and, uh, you know, the goal setting, making a list, you know, part of my brain or my life or whatever that I I also found attractive uh, for some reason. So I kind of just combined, you know, those two. And, you know, over the years, as I, as I went along, um, you know, there were some places that I went that I didn't necessarily, you know, love, but there's always something you can take away from every place. Right. And there's, um, there's also lessons to be learned about the journey itself, you know, which are not necessarily like geographical lessons about a specific place, but, um, what is it like, you know, to move from one place to another and and what is it like to, to plan these sorts of things and how much planning do you do versus spontaneity and, and so on. So I, mean, I, for me, I like, I didn't necessarily know what I was trying to achieve, other than the you know, stated goal itself. Um, I knew I would be changed along the way, but I wasn't quite sure how. And so I think for everybody, like you don't like your goal is to is to learn more about yourself and have experiences. Um, hopefully, come back, you know, a different person, a better person. Um, but I think you have to kind of go through that to experience exactly what it looks like uh, for you, which is why it's so fun. Why it's so fun and also so unique and, and individual.
1: You know, in the Instagram age, when we tend to project uh, a more perfect version of ourselves, including Uh when we travel, I think sometimes it's easy to forget the importance of failure and being lost and Uh adapting Uh through difficulty from travel. So. Uh, just so we can make it clear that that you know chris is not the super he's been to every country in the world but doesn't necessarily mean he wears a cape how did how did uh yeah. failure and adaptation and and being lost as much as being found help inform not just your journey but what you brought home from it
0: yeah i mean the cape is not part of like my daily wear you know it's more just like you know on the weekend or something special right um i think uh, <clears throat> yeah i mean i the, the the mistakes and the failures and and things that went awry or whatever I think those you actually learn more from that uh, than when everything goes smoothly and I was talking recently with uh, Gretchen Rubin another friend she had this whole theory about how you know the the things that go wrong are the most memorable or they make the best memories actually and so I mean there's there's a lot of travel experiences I had that I'm, I'm sure were fine at the time and I enjoyed but I don't really remember them now because I've been traveling very actively for 20 years but you know the time that I like had a you know minor car accident in Italy, and all kinds of crazy stuff happened after that, or the time I got deported from Eritrea, or you know when I went to Pakistan or Saudi Arabia, places like that had various you know challenges and obstacles. I remember those things like very clearly. So those are actually the highlights, I think. And it's interesting that you mentioned about the Instagram thing because I read this article recently. I don't know what it was called precisely, but it was like now it's almost a now it's almost a cliche to highlight you know, so-called real life. So, you know, for so long it was like presenting this perfect image and now all of a sudden it's a trend to, you know, sort of present, oh, you know, you think my life is perfect, but here's what my life really is like. But it's also done in a very, I don't know, a very like um, specific narrative style, in which which is right. also a little bit false, you know? Right. And so it's funny, like there's like these circles to it and like, you know, authenticity is, is kind of like neither of those. Authenticity, like what's really go- going on with your life right now? like What's really happening? And that's You know, that's what I think is worth um, reporting about whether people give you more likes for it or not.
1: I wonder if part of the lessons of travel could just be a familiarity with uncertainty and mistakes Mm. and improvisation. That that in a way, it's just sort of getting your reflexes ready for, you know, all the uncertainty that life gives you.
0: Mm -hmm. Right, and also I think just uh, learning to, you know, either, um, you know, appreciate that environment like appreciate or even look forward to you know that environment of uncertainty or at least to make your peace with it you know Um, but for me it was very much about you know i I actually want that that unfamiliarity i want that um, uncertainty i want you know something i want to have a different experience that for me is what travel is about and i think it's also very um kind of overstated or, or maybe like um and, you know somewhat naive observation that people tend to make when they very first start traveling is like oh wow you know like people in x part of the world are really the same you know as people back here or whatever and it's like well on a superficial level we have some similarities you know but there's also differences and that to me is that again that's the interesting part i mean that's why you go in and see what life is like in china or you know sub-saharan africa or wherever else because it is a different you know worldview and experience and instead of culture, you know, cultural experiences and such than you're used to. And that's good.
1: Yeah, you know, you've used you've brought in a similarity that you saw in West Africa. You've talked about how there's sort of a hustle economy in West Africa that that we can learn from. So how did Mm -hmm. you how do you um draw from the similarities while while warning people about what differences are at hand? How can you tell the difference or can you?
0: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you always can. I think it's it's One just about being open-minded in the first place, you know, being like not having a preconceived notion about what a particular place is like or what people are like in different ways. In terms of that that particular example, I feel like um, I try I try to bring that up a fair amount because most people in sub-Saharan Africa and lots of other parts in the world are entrepreneurs, whether they use that word or not. And like in in a lot of Western culture and a lot of people that I know um, their, their experience of entrepreneurship is very much limited to, you know, what they've known in the United States or, you know, similar Western, Western country. And so I always like to be like, well, actually, you know, this has been happening for a long time. People have been buying and selling, you know, since the beginning of of commerce. And, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of, um, lessons we can take from that. And the only advantage is, you know, the advantage that we have is the, is like the access to the global marketplace technology and, you know, just resources to start with. But um, you know, they're doing all of that without those things in many cases, but are able to find a way to, to make a living.
1: Yeah, I guess in some ways their boldness can be commended. That they don't mm-hmm. have the same resources, but they mm-hmm. do use what resources they have to sort of create their own hustle and create markets where maybe there may not have been certain people catering to those markets. Um
0: Yeah, well it's an imperative, you know, they have to because there's there's no formal economy, you know, in a lot of those countries, or the formal economy is very very limited, and you've got maybe 20 percent of the population working so-called jobs, you know, in a lot a lot of um, these countries, and then the rest are, like they're just doing something, you know, to to provide for their families.
1: Yeah, you know, um, you talk a lot in your books about the idea of university and how going to university just because you think you're supposed to go to mm-hmm. university can be sort of an expensive decision. Um, mm-hmm. And keeping in mind that travel has informed your life, it's informed my life. If, some, if there's an argument to be made for somebody investing that 60 grand into travel, and actually you could travel <laughs> for way less yeah. than 60 grand. Oh
0: yeah, right, right.
1: What's the, what's the argument for using travel as a university or even as a way of fine-tuning what you want to f- seek when you go to university?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'd be curious what you think about that. I, I think so much has changed, um, probably in the time since you wrote your book. I mean, your book was a major influence. Your first book, you know, or the bag was a major influence on a lot of people, and I think um, maybe coincided as well with um, just a shift that was taking place and more people asking, like, what are the cost benefits, you know, of this stuff? It's not like it's not like the statement is college is bad. You know, you should not go to university. You know, of course that's not the statement. It's it's you know cost benefits, like like you said, sixty grand you know, whatever it is, it's a lot of money. You can do a lot of things with that. So, you know, if it's your goal to go to medical school or something, you want to be a doctor, you probably shouldn't do that on your own. Like there probably is like a prescribed course, you know, track to go through, which doesn't mean you can't you know, travel for a year before you start that or whatever. But if you're not sure what you want to do, which is, you know, so many people who, who go into college these days, I'm not sure I have an idea, but I don't really know, which is again, totally normal. You don't have to, you know, what your life purpose is when you're 19 or 20 or even 25 or 30 or whatever. Um, why spend that 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 money? You know, why spend all that money for something that has a, an uncertain return? And people would say, well, you know, travel. Like, what, what's the value in that? Well, you know, lots of people go to college, but um, not nearly as many people. You know go travel in Southeast Asia for six months or whatever, and they're going to come back changed in one way or another. And besides, also you know you can always go to college later, right? It's not like you're making this decision to turn your back on it. So I think it all comes down to like cost benefits. What are your goals? What do you want to do? What do you want to achieve? And then what's the best way to to get there? And if you're not sure, then you don't have to decide right away. You can you can defer that decision.
1: You you are obviously a very much a list and goal driven guy. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. Is that a, re- a requisite? Like, do you think a given journey into the world needs a list of goals, uh, or even not at just all. just yeah. a, okay? So, <laughs> so, so explain as a, as a list driven guy, explain how you can how you don't need one.
0: Yeah, sure, sure. No, I didn't mean to cut you off there. I was just for me, I am a list driven guy. Okay, that's just me, you know. And I, I do see a similarity, um, not necessarily with travel in particular, but I wrote a book called The Happiness of Pursuit. Uh, which is partly about my quest, but then also about lots of other people who undertook quests of various kinds. Um, And so there there are all kinds of different things like this guy who was trying to produce a symphony, you know, for 28 years and um, lots of intellectual stuff, like different things like that. So I do see a kind of a similar similarity there. And, you know, people that are drawn to those kinds of things, they do tend to be like goal oriented. They do tend to to like lists and, you know, organization structure. Um, They're rewarded by milestones and timelines and stuff like that. But, um, you know, in terms of travel, uh, people just going out to see the world. No, you don't have to have a list. You don't have to have, a, you know, goals. And, and I also want to be clear just for myself, like, you know, even though I, I have the list or whatever, I didn't start the journey to every country in the world until one day I made a list and realized I had been to 30 different countries, you know, and I went to 30 different countries because I love to travel. I love the experience of it. And so for me, the way the, the goal was kind of um, putting out rapper, like a foundation or something around something that I already love to do, you know? So it was a compliment. It wasn't like it was the thing that was leading the way.
1: Now, did you write happiness of pursuit after you'd finished that journey?
0: Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I kind of started outlining it in the the final year, Uh, but then I finished it up uh, after that.
1: I thought that was that was so interesting. It was sort of an it was a way to to wrap up your own quest while pointing to other variations of quests. I mean, were you tempted to write just a straight up travel memoir instead of this?
0: this no, m- no, because I'd be I'd be bad at that. I would be a just a I just not I would not be a good uh, travel memoirist. I'm, I'm not a good travel writer in the first place. I mean, that's what's interesting is like when I first started the the blog, the Art of Nonconformity. I thought, okay, I'm going to write travel essays you know and i realized pretty quickly i wasn't good at that and other people are having much more detailed observations and same with photography you know like when i first started traveling independent i'm like oh i I need to get a camera i need to learn how to take you know proper photos and all that and and i did for a bit but i i felt like it was a burden to me to me personally i was like "I'm, i'm carrying this camera around Um, because I feel like I should be carrying a camera around. And when I go and have this experience, I'm thinking about how can I get the right shot or whatever. And once I kind of let go of that, you know, I actually actually had much better experience, you know, for me personally. Now, obviously, there's lots of you know amazing photographers out there. But again, that's what that's what they do. So same with the travel writing. You know, I don't think my travel memoir of going to every country in the world would be that exciting. It would be that interesting. Um, but you know, that's why I was like, Okay this was a quest. Why did I undertake a quest and then what, what are the similarities between people who do this kind of thing and you know what are what can we learn from it? Why does someone choose you know to spend a long period of time in their life you know towards something that really matters a lot to them and maybe other people don't care about um, and so that that was more interesting to me
1: well that's a good distinction to make just sort of in one's own writing interests and talents you know because some people as writers are raconteurs who will tell the story of the time that they went up the river in West Africa. And sure. other people, and those people might be terrible at actually giving advice about how to format a quest. Whereas it it seems like you identified certain a certain philosophical yet practical um, focus in the kind of writing that you did. Did you write yourself into that talent, or was that something that you just sort of had instincts for that you sort of knew that that was more where you wanted to focus things?
0: yeah definitely was not instincts it was definitely the the former in terms of writing myself into it in terms of uh okay i think i'm going to write about travel well what does a travel writer do okay a travel writer surely you know must write about going up the river in west africa or whatever so i start kind of working toward that and you know do do some of that but uh, you know again realize i wasn't that that great at it and then when i started writing more about process you know, first of all, I was better at it, and also I was more excited about it. Like there is, a, you know, I don't believe everybody should go out and follow their passion, but I think there is a connection between something that you know makes us come alive, and then and something that's going to be more viable for us. So uh, it was like the more I did that, the more I focused on those things, and the more I realized, okay, this is this is what I should be doing. So for anyone who's listening, you're not sure, okay, what kind of travel writer am I, or what kind of writer am I, or what kind of creative person? am I, um, I think you find, you find out by doing a bunch of different things. You find out by buying a camera and learning to take photos and asking yourself, you know, do I like this or do I not? And what, what other art forms do I like? And how can I try? What, what creative experiments can I try? And, and, you know, the ones that work are the ones that bring me more joy. Those are the ones I'm going to spend more time in.
1: I think it's good to be aware of that differentiation too. Um, you know, I teach, I've been teaching writing classes in Paris for a long well, time and a right. lot of students come in and they just aren't as vested in that, Sort of bar side raconteur style of writing. They might bring in some expertise mm. and have more instincts that way. So I've sort of found that my my teaching has bent toward accommodating that sort of writing. I, I even teach a, a big mm. idea uh, writing book uh, c- boot camp now, because mm. I think that sometimes sometimes we forget that we, we that that there's more than one way to 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 capture the experience that we've accumulated over the years. And it sounds mm. like it sounds like you through. Was it through your own instincts, or was it through the way people responded to your blogging, for example, that you discovered what you were good at as a writer?
0: It was probably a combination of the two. I think it was a. I think um, if I was just doing it on my, on my own in a vacuum, I don't know that I would have figured it out. So I think there there is a role for putting your work forward in some way. You know whether it's through a blog or some other different medium. Uh, it doesn't mean that you should you know always one hundred percent follow you know, what people respond to because I think it's important you know just to demonstrate creative leadership, you know, to a degree and and try to move forward. But uh, yeah, I mean, for me, it was definitely like I I published a manifesto called a brief guide to world domination, uh, maybe like six months after I started my blog. And that did better than anything else I did. I mean, I got read by like a lot of people. And it was just kind of funny, because I was also finishing up my master's thesis at the time. And, you know, I spent a lot of work on that master's thesis, and three people read it, you know, the people on my committee, you know, and like I was like, this is interesting, and I, I spent you know, about the same amount of time on this little manifesto that I wrote, you know, for the internet, whoever is out there on the internet, and then my master's thesis, you know, for three people, and I was like, okay, this is this is better. You know, I should go more in this direction. So it's a combination of like instincts and and experience and response.
1: I think it's interesting that you that document was called World Domination, yet your first book was not mm-hmm. called World World Domination, but your conference, your summit is World right. Domination Summit. So, oh. so as a guy who, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like you sort of got mm-hmm. your start as a writer, but now you're this guy who runs a conference. You also have a, a podcast, which, which runs a lot, like uh, every day of the week, as far as I can tell.
0: Yep. Mm-hmm.
1: How did you know when and how to branch out um, because it feels like you could have just kept your franchise specific to writing. Were there specific topics that mm-hmm. you felt required a conference or a podcast?
0: Well, you know, Ralph, I just I kind of do what I'm excited about. I kind of do. I like to, to start projects. That's what motivates me. It's like if I finish a project, I'm like, what's next, you know? And so I also can't write, you know, eight hours a day. I mean, there's, there's probably some some people who can do that but i I've kind of got like maybe two to three hours you know a day of that kind of creative energy so you know what else am i going to do and I, I started doing these meetups with people in different cities and out, like on my first uh book tour i went to all 50 states and every canadian province also and like there's just really interesting people all at every stop and so the conference came about by asking like what would it be like to you know bring together you know, people from every one of these stops, you know, to, to come to Portland and what could we co-create you know, from that? So it wasn't like I said, oh, I want to become an event planner, huh. you know, and the same thing with the podcast. Um, I don't quite remember what the, the origin of that was. Um, it was, yeah, I think it was like I want to tell stories in a different format. I mean, I'm still writing, right? Like I'm writing, you know, every day for the podcast, just delivering it in a different way. Um, but I would say my number one thing is still as a, as a writer, I could, you know, I've done six books and working on the next one. And like, if I could only do one thing, it would be, it would be writing books, but I also like to do the other stuff.
1: Well, the podcasts are, are, are a little bit book-like for lack of a better word that there is sort mm-hmm. of, it's like you've, you've reported and collected this information and you're sort of reading a summary. Does it, do you plan yeah. to do double duty with that, with that kind of thing and will it appear in later mm-hmm. books?
0: Uh, well, I didn't. The, the last book I did was actually quite different in terms of format. It was called 100 Side Hustles. And it was a visual collection, a very like photo driven book. Um, it, it did take 100 of those stories, you know, from the first year of the, of the show, like kind of reformatted and remixed a little bit. Um, but uh, but we did that. And that was an interesting project. I mean, like of all six books, that was definitely uh, the most challenging in lots of ways, because I felt like I, I was doing more like herding cats than I was doing actually writing. Uh Um, And no regrets, like it was a fun project, but I had to, you know, there's like a hundred people in the book, right? So I have to coordinate, you know, photo shoots with a hundred people and, you know, fact checking and follow-ups and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot more of that um, than the actual writing. um, But, you know, now I'm back to actually just just writing. A
1: a couple of of questions related to this. One is I've heard you describe yourself as an introvert, yet, you know, Mm The you know running a, a summit or a conference doesn't seem like introvert work. So how do how do you manage your introversion, or how just speaking to the introverts who might be listening, yeah. Yeah. how can how can you manage that in such a way that you can become this dy- have a dynamic and social life amidst a very real introversion?
0: Sure. Um, well, I spend a lot of time by myself, and um, I, I think most introverts probably know that um, you know being an introvert or being an extrovert really has very little to do with your ability to do public speaking or you know to be social. It's it's where you recharge, you know, it's where you derive your energy from. And so for me, like I go on a book tour and like got to do this big event every night. Might have some media stuff during the day, but, you know, for probably a hundred percent of the other time, I'm gonna be by myself. And like I do the events and I go back, you know, to my hotel room or wherever I'm staying and I you know I'm just by myself. Like I first book tour, you know, like I didn't have any money. It was all DIY and I would stay on people's couches and such, um, but kind of learn that experience. I really need some some space to myself. So, and you take all the time you need for yourself, but then you can also, you know, put yourself out in the world. So, I don't think I don't think uh, being an introvert can hold you back in some ways. I think it's an advantage.
1: I'm also curious about workload type issues because you, since since you started with your blog. You've written several books and then you, you have a lot of podcasts. You just seem like a really busy guy. Is, is it, is, is overwork or work life balance ever an issue?
0: Yeah. I mean, I am somewhat compulsive. Um, I think work life balance is interesting. I think that that concept is kind of a, a corporate concept, you know, it's like, uh, something corporations talk about to make their employees, you know, feel like they should be happy, you know? Um, but it, obviously like you you should do more in your life than just work. Uh, I guess I, but for me it starts with this perspective of like, I love what I do. Like I really do. Like I feel very fortunate that, you know, there's this global community of people out there that care, you know, some of them at least what I have to say and I can do these events and people actually show up. And like, I don't, I don't take that for for granted. Um, If I could do, you know, like there's, there's all these exercises about like, you know, if time and money were no object and like, what would you do? Like what's your perfect day look like and all that kind of stuff. And, for me, like every time I go through them, my answers are pretty much aligned more or less with what I'm doing now. You know, so um, it's not to say it's without struggle or challenge. Like I do feel overwhelmed sometimes, and that's nobody's fault but my own. I do feel I'm overcommitted sometimes, um, and sometimes I feel like you know there can be like a, a quality concern, quality assurance because you know there's so much stuff that's going on. So I, that that is uh, you know a constant struggle. But I don't really have any desire to do less. Uh, I just have a desire to you know do it better and make sure it's all cohesive, make sure it's all aligned with the overall life that that I want to live.
1: That's an interesting way of framing the, the whole work-life balance thing as a corporate idea, because I've never specifically thought about it in those terms. But in vagabonding, I talk about the you know the traveler who'll go to the beach for the first several weeks of their trip and then get bored, and they'll forget. You know, the the idea of having tasks and goals mm-hmm. is part of right. the enjoyment of life. Um, That's
0: life, yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the idea of of doing better work instead of less work is is central mm-hmm. to, to your philosophy. Are there other, have you found that you have a core set of philosophies that you keep coming back to that have sort of emerged mm-hmm. through the course of not just writing, but interact with people who are reading your writing?
0: Mm. That's a good question. I think, um, I mean, the overall theme of everything that I try to do you know, through the books, the blog, podcast events, et cetera, whatever else is um, you don't have to live your life the way others expect. And that is the theme. That's like the top level 50,000 feet theme that I hope, you know, kind of distills through different projects or iterations, um, whether it's like wanting to make money for yourself, you know, like to create this asset for yourself that will allow you to do other things or through identifying a quest, you know, or through just like, it doesn't have to be these huge things either. It can also just be like, what is it that you want to do with your life? If you had a crazy idea that nobody else understands, that idea has value. Just like understanding that that idea actually has value. And like I talked with a lot of people who done stuff like walk across America or, you know, otherwise like given up given up something that other people around them don't understand and say, why would you possibly like walk away from this job or this opportunity or this graduate school program or whatever? And a lot of what I hope to do is just, affirm those people and say, actually, there's, you know, you're not alone. There are other people that are doing this and there's a lot of, of joy and life satisfaction in, you know, really figuring out what it is that you want to do um, regardless of what other people expect. And then doing that, I think that's probably the overall theme. There's probably some different, you know, strategies and such underneath that.
1: Yeah. It's almost like there's an extent to which your work, at least in my estimation has sort of turns you into a discontent whisperer, you know, that you, you, There's 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 very much a bottomless market. It feels like in discontent, and you you're stepping in to address various iterations of people's discontent. Was this was this a plan, or did is have you just sort of worked your way into the idea that you know did you did did one day you wake up and said hey people are discontent with their otherwise comfortable Mm -hmm. American lives, or Mm -hmm. after talking to so many people did you realize that that was you know that was basically what. Or am I completely wrong about all this?
0: No, that's great. I think I should put that I, I should use that as a blurb on one of my books. You know, Ralph <laughs> Potts says I'm a discontent whisperer. That's great. <laughs>
1: there you I go. love that.
0: Um, I don't think it was I don't think it was also strategic. It's just over you know, you kind of pay attention, listen to what people are saying. And like those those book tours that I did have been so valuable. And like the the best selling book that I've done is is the hundred dollar startup. And that book came about through all the different conversations I had. all across middle America, Kansas and elsewhere of realizing that there's all kinds of, of people who are starting little businesses for themselves and nobody's really talking about that. Like everybody was talking about a Silicon Valley lean startup model, et cetera, um, or a traditional startup model, which requires money and such. And like, there's all these accidental entrepreneurs. Nobody's really talking about them. So that came about by, by having conversations with lots of people. So the discontent, um, I, I think, I think discontent is a powerful force. And I think discontent. Um, you know, if you feel discontented or, or troubled, or as you said, you know, you've got a good life, but you feel like there's more out there, um, then I think you should pay attention to that. And so, yeah, I guess it is a, it is a market. Like if you're if your life is, if you're 100% satisfied with your life in every way, then I don't know that you know my work is going to be that helpful you know to you because it is all about change. You know, my market is people who are interested in changing something for one reason or another. Um, but like it's, a, it's like you said, it's a big market of people who want to do something different.
1: Yeah, you know, um, the $100 startup, I keep mentioning my nephew, Luke, in this podcast. I think it's because he's a high school senior, and that's a very transitional time. I, I'm going to give him a copy yeah. of the $100 startup because just so he knows, his mom is a college professor, and I'm, you know, I believe in the institution of college, but not the mindless pursuit of a college education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to mm-hmm. give him that book just so that he knows that, that he can keep this stuff in mind if need be. Yep. And Mm -hmm. and I I think sometimes we forget that there is, we think of youth as all potential, but there's also a lot of anxiety and, and let's face Mm -hmm. it, discontent among the young. Do you find a lot of your audience are in that very formative stage or are they mostly further along their careers and reconsidering things?
0: Yeah, well, they also experience a lot of pressure as well, right? I mean, some of the discontent comes from like, you know, the expectation that other people have. you know you should know exactly what you're supposed to do with your life and so on um as as for like my general readers or so i would say um i i have some like you know young people and like you know teenagers and like maybe young 20s i definitely have to have some some but i would say probably have more you know like once they encounter the so-called real world you know like there's a certain part of your life where you're, you're kind of idealistic or maybe people are changing on this which is not a bad thing but you know for a long time, it was like I am going to go to college and get a good job, and you know this is the path. And and then once they realize like there's some problems with that, at least for a lot of people, or all all of those good jobs aren't necessarily waiting on the other side, or there is this huge problem of student debt. Um, that's when people are kind of like rethinking and like, okay, maybe I need to find a different approach. But I guess when I whenever I hear from people who are you know high school seniors or similar, I always think, well, that's good. This person's ahead of the curve. Basically, this person is is actually, you know probably far beyond their peers and asking these questions of themselves.
1: Yeah, you know, a lot of times there's this argument, this societal argument that's saying, well, college isn't doing a good enough job of giving people vocational skills. But I think that the mm. co- colleges are probably historically more idealistic than we give them credit for, that they're also trying to mold citizens. Yet in the right. travel contents, again, I'm thinking of that $60,000 you'll invest. Right that actually especially for Americans getting a global sense uh, is also a good way of becoming a better citizen. So um well, I think there's an extent to which it need not be education need not be this zero sum thing that you really can in a very subtle way in, encounter the world well, and give yourself options in a way that goes beyond well, what you're told to do.
0: Absolutely 100%, you know. And I think there's more and more programs now that which you don't obviously have to go with it program but i think for people who aren't sure what to do and some structure can be beneficial there's like all that semester at sea and everything else like that remote year a um, bunch of stuff that's kind of helping just make it a little bit easier and more turnkey to go and have those experiences
1: yeah yeah and in, in a way it's easy to to slam universities um just because <clears throat> they're, they're trying to do well and i remember when i taught <clears throat> university for a while going to events <clears throat> where I would talk about travel and then someone would say oh we're, our school sponsors this event with the uh, through the state department blah 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 and I was just thinking mm-hmm. well that's great but if you're smart you'll spend the first two weeks partying and then the rest of the year you know actually having really dynamic things that don't involve having to meet with state department people so I think that um mm-hmm. Right, right. A, a smart and curious person on the road, um, even if they do have a little bit of fun from time to time, um, needs mm-hmm. maybe less structure than than um, than we think they do.
0: Sure. Yeah, I think it depends on the person, you know. But uh, I think um, people are people are smarter than we give them credit for. They're more adaptable than we give them credit for. So, you know, there's there's very little downside. I mean, I know you talk about this too. But there's very little downside to planning your vagabonding trip. Right? Like if you don't like it, do you go somewhere else? If you discover that you really, you know, hate travel and want to go back to wherever you were, then that's what you do. You know, like these these are not these are um I heard this phrase recently that I liked um reversible decisions. You know, yeah. there's a lot of decisions that we can make that you know the, the the cost of failure or the cost of changing our mind is very low. So in that situation, I think it's almost like you have an obligation to to if you if you're thinking, might this be a good idea. And you know the costs of it not being a good idea are so low. Why why wouldn't you, you try it? Because if you don't, then you're always going to wonder. You know what would have been what would it have been like if I had gone to Vietnam when I had that idea and that chance? Or, or what would it have been like if I pursued that volunteer opportunity? Or just you know took off and backpacked in Europe or whatever?
1: Yeah, it's almost like we need a narrative category for the people whose whose international adventure didn't quite deliver, you know, we have like B- Bill Gates, uh, Bill sure. Gates and Mark Zuckerberg are these air quotes college dropouts, right? So we have this Right, right. we have this set story for people who for whom college didn't quite give them, you know, the mm-hmm. tools that really made them break through. In a way there could be an mm-hmm. equivalent of travel. I don't know if I don't know if I really sure need to write a a sequel to vagabonding called vagabonding failures and how Hmm. they can improve your life. But that that could be a thing, you know, that it's, it's better to try to travel and fail than to not try to travel at all.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. I think so. I don't know that, that, you know, like I try to avoid shoulds, you know, like you should do this, you should do like, there are, I I don't know that everybody necessarily does want to go and see the world in the same way that like you, that you and I have been drawn to, and probably a lot of listeners are drawn to. And so not an evangelist you know for anything I'm much more of a recruiter. I'm just like putting out you know values right Here's a value here's an idea does it does it sit with you does the shoe fit? great you know if it doesn't you know peace be with you you know
1: yeah there's a, there's an extent to which I think I wrote vagabond to the idea not that you should travel but the idea that if you want right. to travel you can. Um, right, and, and I right, think right. there's an old model. It's it's almost completely dissolved in the age of digital nomadism and all this information we have. But it was just sort of this old upper middle class notion that you should travel, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But then it has this societal obligation. Whereas if you're a middle class or lower middle class or working class people and you, a person and you really want to travel, there's there's ways to do it. Um, yeah, and so that feels like that, and then and then I guess I guess this new category that we've invented just now is the the the, the not quite success of, <laughs>
0: right.
1: of of the world journey that you learn from and use it to improve your life. So I like that. Yeah. Um,
0: the stay at homer
1: the stay at homer the the the, 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 the one time <laughs> vagabonder who becomes the staycation success. I don't know. I'm 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 uh, I'm right. taking this and maybe running too far with it.
0: Yeah. But, I- you never know. Very, it's very contrarian, right? I mean, like it's yeah. funny because your books originally and my books are like, you know, contrarian to begin with, and like things kind of change and become more mainstream. And so now it's like, what's the opposite of of that, right?
1: Right. Well, I guess it's <laughs> it's a matter of if it works and does. Is it improving people's lives and and other things to think about? You know, um, yeah. your philosophies have have developed over the years since your time in West Africa, um, and now you've written seven books. I presume you'll write a seventh. Um, how do you know when you have a book versus maybe a podcast or an event, and then how at this point do you use your accumulated expertise without overlapping with what you've already addressed in your books?
0: Yeah, I mean that's great. If we could do a whole podcast uh, on that, I'm sure you have a lot to say about it as well. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I guess for me, I can, you know, I can kind of identify if I look back on the different books, which ones were hard to write, you know, versus relatively easy. And I think the ones that were harder to write were when I had like a grandiose idea, like I had kind of knew more or less what I wanted to do, but I didn't really, like it really wasn't that structured. It was like I had a general objective, but didn't quite know how to get there. And then others where it's like, actually, I kind of can see it, you know, from the beginning through and through. And it's just a matter of putting in the work. Um, I think it's, I guess I do this more and more. I think it's probably smarter, at least for me to like choose projects in which, Kind of understand more or less how to how to get to the destination because it's going to take twice as long, you know, if I if I don't know if I don't know that process in the beginning. Like I wrote this book called Side Hustle, and I did like this this um, day form a step format, step by step, you know, 27 days, you know, from idea to income. And I loved the writing process for it; it was the easiest book I've written because I was like, all I need is I need to spend some time working on this outline and then and tweak it as I go along. But basically, I know from day to day what to work on. Whereas with the happiness of pursuit, that again, that was like a bigger picture. It's like a quest. You know, okay, well, there's obviously you can create some structure for it, but it's going to be a little bit different than like, here's the 27 days, you know, to create your, you know, side hustle, your income generating project or whatever. So it's not like I want to do only, only like practical things going for it, but I want to make sure that I know what the vision is at the outset.
1: Yeah. And, and at a certain point, I'm curious to know how you map those individual books, you know, how they, mm-hmm. uh, how they structure themselves. Um mm-hmm. but also, I, I think just for this, the sake of my listeners, and in fact, some listeners who think they might have a book in them and and I think a lot mm, of people f- think that they do, is how do you Good. know not just when to write a book but when not to write a book? because you know' I've, I, I've started teaching mm. these these big idea book boot camps, and sometimes mm-hmm. I cringe a little bit when somebody says, well, I have this this expertise that I've accumulated as a professional. Uh, and it can be many mm-hmm. realms, and this is the icing on the cake. I just, I just feel like mm-hmm. this. It, basically, they're mm-hmm. saying this is my prestige project. That's basically the slam mm-hmm. dunk to all this stuff, and it makes me cringe mm-hmm. a little bit because they're forgetting that there's a reader involved who you have yeah, to deliver right, for. Yeah. So, right. So, so that in mind, for people who think they might have a mm-hmm. book in them, what kind of advice um. can can you give to them about what and what what doesn't designate bookability?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a good word. Uh, I think um, you know. I, speaking of being an evangelist, for a long time I was an evangelist about writing books because that's what I always wanted to do, and I thought it was the coolest thing. So why wouldn't everybody else want to do that too, you know? And so I kept lots of like we probably have some mutual friends and people that are like coming up in different you know online spaces. And uh, as I got to know them, whatever I would I would encourage them to write a book, and then realized like over time the first the first thing first is you have to want want to write your own book. Like if, if writing a book is not something that you are really, really excited about, um, then you shouldn't do it first, first of all, because, you know, as we know, so much involved with it and the return on investment may not be that great. You may not actually reach a lot of people with it. So first things first, make sure you really want to do it. Um, I think second, maybe another pitfall in addition to the one you mentioned is, um, a, a book usually book usually needs more than one idea. You know, people might have a good idea for a Ted talk. Or a good idea for like a long blog post or something. And sometimes those can turn into like book length, you know, manuscripts. But a lot of times they're kind of weak. Like the, the concept is well communicated with a thousand words. So if it's well communicated with a thousand words, you know, do you really need another 59,000 words of examples, you know, or tangents from that? So I think maybe that's another thing is is, you know, do I have enough material? Can I envision that there could be enough material for this? for this concept to become a quote unquote book.
1: Are there examples that of, of books that influenced you in terms of how you structured and approached your books? Um, mm. Starting with The Art of Nonconformity, because I've noticed like, at least the books of yours that I'm familiar with, they sort of have three parts of around four chapters each. They have a lot mm-hmm. of nice uh, lists of bullet points and, and summaries and, and side boxes and, and questions to guide the reader. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to know if if that's just sort of something that you invented, or if there if there is there was a kind of a big idea book template that that you drew from as you were writing your early books.
0: I don't think there was a, a template, and I don't know that I can identify like a single book or a few books that influenced that process. I was I just read a lot of different books, you know, for for a long time before I started writing books myself, and so I think I probably assimilated some of that stuff, um, and some of it just. I don't want to say it felt natural, but that, some of that structure is is not terribly uncommon. Like I don't feel like I created it, and in some ways, um, it's always interesting because you want to have this balance of like I want the reader to pay attention. Like a, a, an editor of mine gave me some really good advice once about how, in a nonfiction book, especially like a prescriptive nonfiction book, a how-to book of some kind, you you don't want the reader to read, you know, more than a page. Like every single page, there should be something helpful or interesting to them. They might not use, you know, all 300 tidbits of a 300 page book or something, but there should be something of value on every page. So I tried to to do that in terms of the, like the reinforcements and such, you know, the bullet points and the thing at the the end, you know, the key points, I kind of go back and forth because on the one hand, you know, it's it's helpful in terms of retention and so on. On the other hand, it can be condescending. You know, it's like the reader just read this. So it's like reader, here's what I'm going to tell you reader, here's, here it is. And by the way, did you get it? Did you really get it? If not, I'm going to tell you three more times, you know, at the end. So I think it's, um, it's a balance of like, and, may, and maybe the answer is different for each book. You know, I'm not saying like I regret doing that in some of the books. It's just like, I think you always want to ask yourself, is this needed? Is this right for this book? And not every book needs to have a ton of sidebars. Um, maybe some books that don't have them would benefit from them. you know, who knows?
1: Yeah, I think it might be, is it right for this reader, too? Because some people read with different levels of attention. Yeah,
0: very good. And, and very those, good, yeah, those, sure.
1: those bullet points might be perfect for the person who is yeah, you for know, sure. reading in a hurry with screaming kids in the room. So <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. Well, actually, one thing to to jump back um, to a, a sort of a, a question I asked earlier, just about the idea of is it enough for a book or is it a thousand word article? Mm. I'm curious mm-hmm. to know, one of, One question could be, is it a book or is it a podcast? And then could the mm-hmm. podcast give me the roadmap
0: for the book? Do you think
1: that in, in this mm-hmm. day and age, a podcast is a good companion piece before you've written a book?
0: Uh, I think it it depends. It's kind of like, I feel age old, like people used to ask this about a blog, right? Like if you want to write a book, should you have a blog first? Um, so these mediums always change. And I guess, um, you know, for me, I, I gravitate toward books first, because that's just like the medium that I always preferred, you know, growing up. Um, but I think there's, there's some, probably some value in being like platform or medium agnostic and just thinking about content. I mean, I think there probably is like, if, if someone is fluent in multiple mediums, especially these days with video and, and you know other things that are, that are coming up and changing, Um, I think there, it could actually be valuable to be like, you know, here's the idea that I want to communicate, or here's what I, here's the reader or the person that I want to reach. What is the best way to communicate those ideas and to reach those people? Um, and then there may be a way to essentially, um, you know, do it in more than one way. You can have the podcast and then the book, as you said, or it could be, you know, a web series or something entirely different.
1: You know, I, a lot of your books now are interview-driven. Uh, you know, I talked to Ryan Holiday, mm. who who has a lot of yeah. research involved, and he uses Scrivener to. Or he doesn't use Scrivener. Actually, he uses a commonplace book to collect his ideas. I talked to Alex Benayan, who, mm. who really was out to interview famous people and get their advice when he when he was a young guy. Um, whereas you have mm. a lot of sort of um, case studies and man in the field type. Yeah. Is, does that right, right. does that really structure a lot of your books? Is it a matter of getting your case studies and then seeing what sort of patterns emerge?
0: Uh, yeah, that's a big part, especially for um, the books like Hundred Dollar Startup or Side Hustle, where I am trying to teach some concepts and I want people to um, I, I want people to relate to some of the stories. So, like I think Hundred Dollar Startup has you know, maybe forty or fifty different people in it, and so the idea is that you are know, not going to relate to each person but hopefully somewhere along the way you're going to be like oh this person's kind of like me you know this person didn't have a lot of advantages uh, but they started this project so therefore maybe I can too so i think relatability is really you know a key thing there but then yeah also like i do a lot of surveys you know what are the common themes what comes comes about from that kind of research um, and then that kind of then drives the the rest of the writing process which i use scrivener for as well i use scrivener and keep you know different different you know notes and outlines and such in it
1: does your Scrivener, and this is some inside baseball Scrivener, because not everybody <laughs> will use sure. it. But right, right. Does it break? Does it end up breaking down into chapters? Do, do your little binders end up being chapters in your book?
0: Uh, eventually, yeah. Eventually, I might even not start with actually. You know, Scrivener is like for the actual writing process, but it might be more like Evernote and Google Docs and a few other places in the beginning, and then eventually it kind of moves over over there.
1: Yeah, my relationship with Scrivener is so specific to myself that sometimes I feel like I'm a, an, mm-hmm. on a walking advertisement for Scrivener because it's really working <laughs> right with, with the system that sure. I've done. Um, so once you have a sense for things, do, does like the table of contents drive the map of your book, or does that emerge from the writing itself?
0: Uh, it depends on the book, you know. For Side Hustle, like that twenty-seven steps, then I, you know, table table of contents drove everything else which is again why it felt um you know relatively easy uh if it's more of like a big ideas book the art of Nonconformity*, uh, the happiness of pursuit then um it, I, don't, I don't think it's really a table of contents it's more just like conceptual and um may actually move like major sections of the book around as i go along and discover some section that i didn't even think about I like, as i go along so it depends on how organized it, it is at the outset i think
1: did happiness of pursuit change a fair amount from beginning of the project to the end of the project, um, or or did you have a did it come out of a game plan?
0: That one I, I had a I had a personal struggle with that one. And I think that was the, the hardest book I have written, and I don't know if it's so much to do with the topic or the content. Maybe it was in terms of like I was also kind of depressed at the time of like finishing this whole quest. Um, but that's actually it was actually that year. That I went back to the to the doctor and was like, hey, I had ADD when I was a kid, you know, but here I am, you know, 35, and I haven't had any treatment or medication, you know, since. But but I'm thinking like maybe I need that basically. So I started actually getting more help for, for ADD, and it was it was because I was really struggling with uh, with writing that book, and I missed my deadline for it, which I never which I hadn't done before or since, and so um, that was definitely a definitely a thing there.
1: Interesting. I'm curious to know, just in, you know, you're talking about ADD, um, mm-hmm. for, for people who might be struggling with things like that or depression or anxiety as, as a creative person, mm-hmm. um, any mm-hmm. any ideas for how to work through that or how to navigate that uh, or even just address it as something that's that's real?
0: Yeah, well, I think addressing it as something as real is a good start. And and um, I mean, pretending that it's not there isn't going to, to help very much. I mean, it's not going to help in the in the long term. So, uh, for me, actually, in that that situation with adD, i'm I'm so glad that I actually decided to start doing something about it. And for a very long time, I was just kind of opposed to to you know medication or antidepressants or anything like that, and just think, oh, I don't don't need that. And then I realized like actually, for some people, some people do need that. and it can be helpful for some people for a time. and like there's there's all kinds of different situations there. Everybody's unique. So for me, actually, just um, you know starting to get some help in that way and then started going to therapy as well a couple of years later also, you know, made a big difference and brought me a lot of insight. And I thought, wow, I wish I had actually had some of these conversations and, and learned some of this stuff when I was 20 or 25. Um, so you know, never, never too, too early or too late, um, to start looking at that stuff in your life.
1: Yeah. And I think that kind of thing is way more common than we give it credit for. And that there's even degrees mm-hmm. you can, as a creative person, you can say, oh, well, I I'm, Maybe a little bit depressed or anxious, but not nearly so yep, as, sure. as the people I talk to. Sure. So, right, um, of course. Um, and this is even from a little bit of personal experience that just actually acknowledging it and, and talking about it yep. is, is a good thing. Do you have uh, a, a strong sense of who you're writing for with your books? Do you do you have mm.
0: uh, a specific that's audience great.
1: in mind or a demographic in mind, or who do you who do you think mm-hmm. about when you write?
0: Yeah, that's great. I love that. Um, I don't. I don't think of a demographic, um, I think of a few individuals and the, the individuals change sometimes it's, you know, that's probably why I like to do events and have these conversations with people in different parts of the country and the world, because I often will have some conversation and that then go away and that informs what I'm doing for the, my next book or whatever. Um, not that ever, everything is directly related to that conversation, but I am thinking about that person. Oh, that's just their learning style. Oh, this is what they relate it to. This is the struggle that they're having. And I might think this is like, you know, a struggle. Maybe maybe I didn't have this struggle myself, but I'm seeing a lot of people with this issue. So I shouldn't ignore it. I need to, like, put it in or maybe somebody has a a solution, you know, an answer to something that I hadn't considered. So I think about those kinds of people. Um, It's not a demographic. It's more just like some examples of people I've met.
1: It's interesting how that can work. Uh, Tim Ferriss spoke with my students in Paris one summer and said that sometimes he uses a specific guy. I, I'm sorry, Tim, if I'm mm-hmm. paraphrasing you incorrectly, mm-hmm. here, but it help, just helps him get unstuck. That sometimes when he's trying mm-hmm. to be God speaking to the universe, it's harder than if he's just talking to his buddy, you know?
0: Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, this is always, that's also a good rule for writing an email newsletter or anything else. It's like, you know, you're writing to one person and for me, the, the anecdote about that was my grandma. Before she passed away, she was on my email list, and and uh, she thought she thought I was just writing individual emails to her. And so um, she would have lunch with my dad, and you know she was in a nursing home for the last couple of years of her life. And she, I got a nice email from Chris, you know, today, and he was telling me all about this stuff, and he was inviting me to come to some conference, and I can't travel anymore, so. You know, I just thought that was like I always think about that after that. You know, just writing these individual emails, you know, to however many people are on the list.
1: That's awesome. Go, Grandma. I love mm-hmm.
0: that. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, as we reach the top of the hour, I'm curious to know just some big picture advice. You know, our conversation has sort of drifted towards the idea of writing process and writing organization, just because it's sort of what I'm interested in and it's mm-hmm. something that I teach. But keeping in mind that a lot of people who are listening might not necessarily want to write a book but are very much interested in the idea of being um, discontent whisperers or sort of harnessing um, yeah. their lives in certain ways, what advice would you give to folks for making a good idea happen? Because you know, I think a lot of people mm-hmm. are, are letting sure. an idea fester, be it travel or a book sure. or an entrepreneurship. How, how can they make that see the light of day and not just be buried forever?
0: Yeah. The thing I've been thinking about recently related to that is do the thing that's in front of you. Like do the thing that you, if you've got five different ideas, which people often have, oh, it could be this, it could be this, blah, blah, blah. You know, just just pick one or do the thing, the first thing that's the most accessible to you. That's the easy, even if you're not sure it's the long-term answer, kind of to circle back to where we started with experiments um, if you don't have the big vision, start with the small vision and do that. And normally your vision expands, you know, as like just with travel, like the more of the world you see, the more understanding you have, um, the more confidence you gain. So, you know, if you're not sure what to do, it's like do what is in, in front of you. If you're not sure like who your readers are, think about the people that you know. Um, how would you communicate something to them? Um, you know, of all the ideas that you have, what could you start working on today that- you could actually put out to the world in some fashion you know in a month or you know a week or whatever the reasonable period of time is i feel like just having some kind of bias toward action uh, is only going to help you no matter what what you end up doing no matter what process you undertake what method medium etc having this bias toward action is is going to be your friend
1: this has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to all of Chris Gillibo's books, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.